and slayers this is mixtress ray and you're listening to what's this bitch talking about to which the answer to that question is every episode of buffy the vampire slayer exactly give or take a day 20 years after its original air date in the u.s so we're talking about bargaining part one and two today even though it's called bargaining part one and two um they're actually like listed as one full episode on like the dvd it's it's not really like a two-parter because it aired on the same night and i don't know why they didn't just call it bargaining and have it just be one long episode why did i have to call it part one and two anyway it doesn't matter so First of all, I have been negligent as of late. I feel like I have not been reading the episode guide. I mean, my only freaking (laughs) reference book, and I don't even read it. Um, So I'm going to try to be better about that because I just did it for these two episodes, and there was a lot of interesting facts in there. And I forgot that the reason that I bought this particular episode guide, um, Nikki Stafford's Bite Me... (laughs) an official guide to every episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. The reason why I bought this book is because it has interesting facts and shit in it. And I think I've been neglecting it. Um, So I'm going to try to be better about that. I won't necessarily, I have Nikki Stafford's Angel episode guide, but I won't necessarily be reviewing that or be reading that every time. Thankfully, there is not an Angel episode. Probably the reason why they aired the Angel episode like a week earlier than this first episode of season six of Buffy is because of how heavy and it might have been taking over the time slot as well. No, it wouldn't have been because from now on, Angel's going to be airing a day before Buffy um, for some reason. So I'm not going to record two separate episodes or anything like that. We're still going to be talking about Buffy and Angel 20 years after Buffy's air date because that's the important show to me. But um, let's let's just at let's just talk about let's reference the um, episode guide first so bargaining part one willow xander tara and anya still reeling from buffy's death try to bring her back to life while spike dawn and giles struggle to move on with their lives so um some interesting things that i highlighted in the description of the episode in like the review and all that stuff. The most telling transformation is, so these words are all from Nikki Stafford who wrote the bite me episode guide. The most telling transformation is that of Willow. So she's talking about the different transformations of the different characters. These sort of like the, the way that the episode introduces where emotionally everyone is in the beginning of the season. The most telling transformation is that of Willow. At the beginning of the episode, she's instructing the Scoobies on how to fight the vampires by speaking inside their minds, not considering whether her actions are an invasion of privacy. 
Her magic this season will move far beyond merely helping people. The most disturbing scene is where she sacrifices the baby deer, blah, blah, blah. So then it goes into, she's describing the spell that Willow was doing whenever she sacrificed the deer and also the spell. She might be talking also about the spell to actually bring Buffy back. And she actually had some details of like, I guess the writers actually pulled from an actual um, spell book to write this particular spell. Um, and it talks about um, you call on like four different angels in this particular spell and blah, blah, blah. And they actually incorporated so in like the original spell book that actually exists in real life, I don't think that this particular angel was mentioned, but they did it for the show, I believe. They picked um, an angel from Judaism to be inserted into the spell. So, I mean, that's just really thoughtful because, you know, like who's thinking about that shit? But um, so I highlighted this part. Let's see. Willow calls upon Jewish deities, Judaism being her original religion, so she can bring forth an angel she will sacrifice to the god Osiris, the Egyptian god of the underworld. So not only did she have to sacrifice the baby deer, but she also had to somehow call upon an angel to sacrifice. Or maybe the deer, maybe she somehow did, maybe that spell was even more insidious than it looked. You know, it looked like she was sacrificing an innocent baby deer, but and she was, but maybe it was even worse because she was actually doing some kind of spell to embody the baby deer with this angel so that she could sacrifice it. She does call the deer blessed one. So even more insidious than you thought that whole spell and that whole, you know, we're witnessing Willow go to the dark side in this moment. I mean, she's definitely like, been dipping her toes in the waters of the dark side, but they knew exactly what they were doing. Um, let's see. Well, has crossed a line as Tara, Xander, and Anya realize when they see how serious the spell is and the physical impact it has on Willow. Not only has she sacrificed the blood of a Hebrew angel for darkness, but she has defied the central law of Wicca to never harm nature or just harm none is really what it is. Okay, so then I, the only person, I highlighted this part, the only person who forces himself to move on without Buffy is Giles. Like everyone else is still in the bargaining phase. We're still in the bargaining phase of grief. That's why this episode is called bargaining. And bargaining is like, is that the first phase of grief? I don't know. I think so. Okay. I just asked Siri. Um, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. So, okay then. So they're in the third stage of grief then. Okay. <laughs> um, so that's, okay, then bargaining part two. Buffy comes back to life and must help her friends rid Sunnydale of a demon biker gang. Willow realizes the urn has broken and believes the spell was a failure. She starts to mourn Buffy. For the first time since Buffy's death, Willow feels her friend is finally gone. That was a really striking scene to me this time. Like when she, that was the first time she admitted it. 
to herself. You know, she just, that's when she just broke down and started crying those willow tears that, you know, brings everyone else to tears too, or does me anyway. Um, okay. Although Buffy is alive, there's only deadness in her eyes. That's another quote from the book. Um, interesting facts under the interesting facts section, Tara calls on Aradia to help guide Willow and Xander. I noticed that I was like, I know that this is the name of a goddess, but I don't know which goddess. So I'm glad that it was mentioned in the book and I didn't have to look it up. <clears throat> calls on Aradia to help guide Willow and Xander whenever she's doing the spell to like take the light into the forest and guide them out of the forest. Aradia was the daughter of Diana, the goddess of the hunt, and is seen as a protectress of witches. I love the word protectress. Um, finally, the writers have perpetuated the myth. This is interesting, too, because I didn't know this was a myth. Finally, the writers have perpetuated the myth that one's hair grows after death, since Buffy's hair looks a lot longer than it was when she died. According to forensic anthropologist William R. Maples, it is a myth that fingernails and hair continue to grow after death. What really happens is that the skin may retract around them, making the hair and nails prickle up and jut out more prominently. So it just sort of like looks like they're longer, but really your skin is shrinking because it has less moisture in it is what I'm assuming. Okay, so that's just like the interesting stuff that I highlighted from the episode guide um and wow i just i can't believe i haven't been fucking reading it because it's so good okay i am going to uh take a nice drink of whiskey now so that we can face what we need to face here okay let's do it Blech. okay <laughs> it's not my favorite not my favorite kind of whiskey although good news guys okay so i'm recording this on my birthday and my Michael was able to procure a bottle of my favorite whiskey of all time, which has been really, really hard to come by since the pandemic started. It's like never for sale anymore. And people are like buying it up and trying to sell it online or probably successfully selling it online for like $300 a bottle. But my Michael was able to procure a bottle. He didn't pay $300 for it through shrewd dealings. Um, and it is Buffalo Trace and I have it, even though it's my birthday today, <laughs> and that was my birthday gift. I did not, I have not opened it yet. So I'm still like finishing off some other whiskey that I have that I don't really like as much, but anyway, you guys don't care. Okay. So let's do this. We're starting season six guys. Can't put it off anymore. Let's talk about it. So bargaining part one starts with a cemetery scene. Um, I have questions like, okay, so it's, it's everybody. It's Giles, Spike, Tara, Willow, um, Anya, Xander. The only person that isn't there is Dawn. And if Dawn needs to be watched at all times, why isn't she being watched on this night? But whatever. Um, I don't think she was there. So Willow's like standing on top of a building, talking to everyone inside their minds. And they're all very like, kind of put off by it. And she's just standing above everyone and telling them what to do inside her mind, inside their minds. And 
Okay, so the question that I have is, why do we need all of this Falderall to take down one vampire? Because, you know, we have Spike, who is, you know, super, because he's a vampire. We have Willow and Tara, who are witches. We have Xander and Giles, who know their way around killing a vamp or two. Um, even Anya, like, even though she doesn't seem to have power... I mean, that's another thing is like, they don't really give Anya power whenever she clearly has it because it was her powers as powers as a witchy human that got her the gig as a vengeance demon in the first place. So this just is just one of those things that just pisses me off. Like they're all fighting together as if it's the hardest thing in the world to kill one vampire. Oh, and they have the Buffy bot too. They have the Buffy bot who is super strong because she's a fucking robot. I mean, it should just be like Spike and the Buffy bot going patrolling every night because they're the two super beings in this group. It should not, they should not need Willow to orchestrate by speaking inside their minds. Anyway, whatever. Also, why is Spike around? And I get the idea that like, we're supposed to think that he feels so incredibly guilty for not defending Dawn properly as he promised to do, um, as he promised Buffy that he would do, that he would defend Dawn till the ends of the earth and he didn't do it correctly. And if he had, then Buffy wouldn't have had to sacrifice herself and he feels guilty. And okay. So first of all, <laughs> some of the things that are going to that are going to happen with Spike's character to ostensibly plot points to prove to us that he does not have a soul, therefore we should not expect him to be good, is very contradictory to this. Because a real soulless Spike, as soon as his love interest died, he would get the fuck out of town immediately. He'd be super depressed. He'd be drinking a ton. He'd get the fuck out of town. It doesn't make sense that he would stick around. And the whole idea is that he feels guilty for not defending Dawn. Therefore, he's sticking around in order to defend Dawn. I maybe could have bought that had we seen Spike just sort of in a drunken stupor back in his crypt throughout this episode or something reluctantly kind of like babysitting Dawn if they brought her to him at the crypt or something. But he wouldn't be this, he wouldn't be participating in hunting down a vampire with everyone in the cemetery. I don't know. This is just me picking it apart too much. Whatever. TV's got a TV, right? But it just, it doesn't make sense how bumbling they all are <laughs> taking care of one vampire. Whatever. Um, it was really sweet to see, so, like, the morning after this, um, this opening scene, we see Tara and Willow just kind of, like, talking about breakfast and just, like, a sweet little, like, morning kiss between the two of them. Like, you can definitely see already in the first few minutes of them being on this different network, this is a network that's, you know, more loose with ratings and things, so... At this point going forward, you are able to see a certain amount of Willow and Tara actually being in a relationship. You get to see them acting more than just friends. 
you know, and you didn't get to see much of that, like, ever before now, like, besides, like, that one kiss in the body and just, you know, some kind of cuddly moments here and there, but, like, they look like a proper couple from now on, so that's nice to see just sort of the beginnings of that, just with that cute little, like, good morning kiss kind of thing. It looked very easy and just sweet. Um, Buffy Bot is hanging out in the, in the, in the kitchen. So it's very interesting that they, it, I think it totally makes sense plot wise, why the Buffy Bot was repaired and they are sort of using her as a stand-in for Buffy. I mean, they keep saying that it's, you know, for appearances so that people don't think that the Slayer's dead, but they're doing it for themselves. They're doing it, you know. Dawn is sleeping in her bed at night because she can't face the fact that she's losing, that she's lost her sister. Um, they're using her so that, you know, and it makes sense. I mean, I think that Willow and Tara would have grounds to possibly adopt Dawn, though, right? I mean, yeah, it makes sense that they would be worried about the foster system taking Dawn away if they found out that Buffy was dead, but also Buffy has a fucking tombstone that has her name on it. So there would be a death certificate, there would be an obituary, <laughs> like, it, again, I'm just picking things apart, but, like, there would be no way that they could keep the death of Buffy the human a secret. I can understand trying to keep the death of Buffy the Slayer a secret from the, from the underworld, blah de blah and, but they haven't even told her dad, and obviously Dawn would just go to her dad, right? I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> the logistics do not make sense of a lot of things on Buffy. And this is a podcast, so I'm going to bring it up, you know? I just gotta. Um, so Buffy Bot's making sandwiches in the kitchen, and it's really emotionally striking. This time around me watching it, I don't think I always was totally tuned in. I think the last time I watched season six was a long time ago. I think it was a long time ago. It might have been like 10 years ago. I don't even know. But, um... So it's just jarring to me, all of these little emotional points that get hit in this, uh, probably in the whole season, but I just, I don't remember being an emotional mess watching the first two episodes of the season. I was not actually that prepared for that. I don't remember it hitting me this hard before. I was, so this is the first time I cried, is in the scene in the kitchen in the first like 10 minutes of the fucking episode, the Buffy bot hugs Dawn and says, you're my sister or something like that and hugs her. And just as soon as, you know, she just like smashes into Dawn hugging her, I'd start crying immediately. <laughs> I'm like, oh shit, we're in for it. Because just the emotional reality of living in a house with a robot that looks exactly like your loved one that is dead. So I guess I should be pointing out that Willow and Dawn, or Willow and Tara are living with Dawn. So that's the current living situation. They're kind of being the caretakers of Dawn, which makes total sense, really. Um, 
but yeah, whew, I'm in for it, dude. I am in for it. <laughs> um, Xander shows up in the kitchen. He's like, house of chicks, relax. I am a man and I have a tool. And I just had to write that down. Um, I also had to write down Anya calls on the phone to say something to them. And, um, Willow has to tell Xander that Anya said, you're her sweet cookie face to him. <laughs> you're her sweet cookie face. Um, blah, blah, blah. Yep. Yeah, my first cry. <laughs> I wrote that down. Um, they keep talking about this big thing that the Buffy bot needs to face and it, she's either ready for it or she's not, you know, like really building it up. And of course what it is, is the parent teacher conference at school. They're still trying to put up appearances that Buffy's alive and blah, blah, blah. So she does okay at the parent teacher conference, I guess, even though it doesn't look like she's doing okay because she's saying very robot-y things. But of course, who's going to suspect that she's a robot? They're not going to suspect that she's a robot no matter what, because why would they? But anyway, whatever. There were a few scenes, just like little tiny, like dialogue bits within a scene that, because I watched this, ep I watched the episode on Thursday with my mom, like I always do. And then I watched it again today, like I always do. But I, I have two sets of the Buffy DVDs because yeah, <laughs> I do. Um, and I usually, I bring one copy over to my mom's. I just bring the season over to my mom's and leave it over there for the, you know, the season that we're going through it. And I forgot to do that on Thursday. So we watched it on Hulu and I don't normally, I don't like watching Buffy on Hulu because they have made it widescreen, even though it was never supposed to be widescreen. So there's a lot of moments that weren't supposed to be there. Like they found old footage that was filmed in widescreen, but it was meant for you know, the smaller TV aspect ratio back in the day. So there were like moments where you could see things happening on the edges of the screen that you weren't supposed to see. And apparently, and I've heard that that's the case with a lot of the Hulu episodes. So I don't plan to continue watching it like that. But anyway, that's just a stupid side note. But one thing I did notice that that were there were there were a couple of scenes, don't quote me on this, but there were a couple of scenes that when I was watching it today, I don't remember seeing on Thursday. So I'm wondering if Hulu also like cuts out some little bits of dialogue and stuff for some weird reason or something. There were, it was only like two little, like small exchanges that I didn't remember being anyway, it doesn't matter, but I'm not looking into it further. I just wanted to bring it up. And if somebody knows, you know, actual facts, let me know. Mixtress Ray at ProtonMail is where you can send me an email. Okay. I've got to uh, pause for a second and open the window in my tiny little closet because it's just kind of hot in here. Okay. Where were we? Um, let's see. We get like a whole thread about Anya being frustrated that like, um, 
Giles has been saying all summer that he's going to leave. He's going to go back to England and he keeps just like not going and putting things off. And Anya's excited because she wants to take over the store. And she's also really excited about being engaged and she wants to tell everyone. And Xander has refused to let them announce their engagement. So this is, you know, for Xander, red flag number one. So you do get like sort of these little character mission statements of where they are right now because from Tara's perspective you do get a few moments of realizing that Willow hasn't told her everything about how the spell is gonna go which wouldn't Tara know like she's more experienced with like book learning witchiness than Willow is but whatever so and you can definitely see that she it's not heavy-handed but you can see that she's like questioning how much magic Willow's doing which we've seen that since the very beginning of their relationship but you know you can see a little bit of that I mean there's nothing destruct self-destructive going on with Tara's character but so that's just the only little hint of what's going on there Willow of course you see that she's going too far into magic as we've already talked about with Xander he's not willing to admit that he's getting that he's engaged to Anya so it's the first indicator that he's not entirely comfortable with the idea of them getting married and it turns out Anya was right when he first asked her to marry him she was like you're only asking this because you think we're gonna die and she was not wrong at all unfortunately so this is the first indicator of that in this episode because there's this through line from Anya's character of like you know why aren't you why aren't we telling people and he's like no everything's too up in the air right now which makes no goddamn sense like it's just it's not gonna make any difference they're gonna be like oh that's so cool awesome congratulations blah 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 it's not gonna yeah anyway oh, I feel like I'm just like too scattered and we're only on page one of my notes oh at one point Anya says <laughs> different quotes from Anya during this conversation as she's sort of confronting Xander about the fact that she wants to tell people she's engaged she wants to take over the store like she's just she's frustrated because nothing is going forward um that has to do with her she's out of control you know and she says I was being patient but it took too long because he says Xander's like you have to be patient and then she says just remember this whole marriage thing was your idea I didn't ask to be all crazy I just thought that was important to note that she said that and she's not wrong there's this cute little bumper sticker I think it's going to be my object of the episode just because I don't have another one and it was cute there's like this little bumper sticker that's next to Giles's desk I'm guessing it's his desk it's like a little workspace where he has like the bills and shit set up um, inside the magic box and it says no parking in rear violators will be towed as in t-o-a-d in a magic shop you guys get it oh my god it's cute okay um we get a few mini scenes throughout the episode of spike babysitting dawn because you know the whole thing is spike dawn and giles do not know about the spell so tara willow anya and xander keep meeting up to talk about like the fact that they're going to resurrect buffy they've been talking about it all summer like it's time you know mercury is in retrograde which interesting fact mercury is in retrograde 
currently. So if you're listening in real time in 2021, uh, 20 years later, it is the time is right. If you need to bring your best friend back from the dead, please remember to dig up their grave first. Okay. Rule number one. (laughs) Okay. I can rant about that later. We're not there yet. Um, there's this whole conversation between Spike and Dawn about, um, you know, the Buffy Bob, the, the people at school reacted well to the Buffy bot and Spike was like, oh, that makes sense because, you know, school is all about churning out a bunch of mindless automatons. And he's like, but, but you should go and graduate because Buffy would want you to blah, blah, blah. And we get some exposition in this moment of like, um, Dawn trying to convince Spike that he can go home, that he doesn't have to hang out with her all night. And she's like, I'm not the key anymore. Or if I am, I don't open anything anymore. So it's okay. You don't have to to protect me. And then that's when we get the exposition from Spike that he um, feels extremely guilty, which he shouldn't be able to do because guilt is a conscience and a conscience is a soul. So he shouldn't be feeling guilt, but he does. Um... Then we get like a scene with a vampire and the Buffy bot, the vampire in the Hanson shirt. And this is sort of, I feel like this is kind of even like a little bit of a preview for the, the trio of nerds, right? Like this little unassuming short, like vampire with wearing a Hanson t-shirt is the one that kind of damages the Buffy bot. And that's kind of a mission statement for what we're going to see. Like the big bad in this, um, season is a bunch of little nerdy boys ineffective, magical nerdy boys. And, but they're not really the big bad. The big bad is self-destructiveness is depression is, um, angst and all that shit. Right. Um, so the vampire in the Hanson shirt accidentally like damages the Buffy bot. So her navigational system is messed up. So she's like running into things. And so he's like, Oh my God, the Slayer's a robot. So then we get, um, back at Xander's it's Xander, Anya, Willow, and Tara. <laughs> I'm so bad with names. Like, I I know their names, but it's just like listing who is in a room. It's just really hard for me or something. Anyway, um, they are all at Xander's having like a meeting talking about this is where we get, where we find out that they're planning to bring Buffy back. This is where we get the conversation that Mercury's in retrograde. Therefore, we need to do this now. Let's do it tomorrow night. Um, They have the urn of Osiris, which is one of the ingredients they needed for the spell. Hanya was able to find it on eBay, which I think is a hilarious joke. You can find anything on eBay. I just found my favorite perfume of all time on eBay. (laughs) Um, Because I need a refill. Something that, like, people have speculated on this in the past. I don't know if there even is a meaning for this. But throughout the course of this two-part episode... Um, Xander, Willow, and Dawn are all wearing shirts with numbers on them. 
And it was probably just the, like the fashion of the time. There was a lot of these like sort of sporty looking shirts that were part of just like regular fashion. And it really probably has nothing to do with anything. But I just wanted to note that Xander is wearing a shirt that says 13. that has the number 13 on it. Willow is wearing a shirt that has the number 11. And Dawn is wearing a shirt that has the number 7. And of course, now that I'm a big tarot nerd, I am... <laughs> corresponding those numbers to tarot. So just in case you're interested and you have any theories, let me know. Again, Ray at protonmail.com. So 13 is the number for death. That's the number Xander's wearing. 11 is the number for the justice card or the strength card, depending on the deck, because sometimes those two are transposed. But usually it would be the justice card. So Willow is wearing the justice card number. Dawn is wearing the number seven, which is the chariot. So like I tried to like make this fit in the context of these episodes, like, okay, how is Xander the death card? Maybe because he's the one in this sort of like argument between everyone that's kind of saying, you know, he's like the only one that's kind of questioning, should we even be doing this? at this point, which is funny because it really should be Tara that should be asking that question based on her track record. But Tara's really backing Willow up on doing this particular spell. And she does have reasoning for it. It's not totally like out of character for her, but I would think that she would be protesting a little bit more normally. But anyway, and Willow being the justice card, she is trying to bring justice to Buffy, justice to Sunnydale. She's trying to right the scales by bringing Buffy back. So those two, like the numbers made sense to me, but I don't know how Dawn is the chariot. Um, the chariot card is about like victoriously going forward and taking the reins of your own destiny. So actually I'm talking myself into it now because she went up onto the tower. She was the one that brought Buffy back from the brink and made her, convinced her to live. She took that initiative. She broke away from Spike and who didn't even look for her, I guess. I don't know, whatever. Um, she took the reins of her own destiny into her own hands. She saved Buffy. Um, so, okay. I think it corresponds to tarot cards. And maybe since the writers were, you know, they were with it enough to put together a spell based on an actual spell, which means they might have done that in other episodes. Maybe they know tarot. It could happen. <laughs> um, how is tarot okay with this? Yep. There's this whole cute little moment of like, you know, they're kind of arguing about, should we really do this? They're all super nervous, you know, now that it's actually time and they have all the ingredients, should they really be doing it? And then there's this whole funny little joke about like, Xander said, well, who made you the boss of us? Talking to Willow. And everybody's like, you did. You made a plaque. You put sparkles on it. It said boss of us. <laughs> so that was just a cute little joke. Just a funny little thing to note, and I'm not sure I would have noticed this ever, except that they mentioned it on the Buffering podcast. Um, Xander has above his couch, like a lighted 
tool pegboard with a like a bunch of wrenches and varying sizes and like different tools hanging above his fucking couch in his living room. Does that make sense? Is that a place where you store your tools? It's just like a weird little like set design choice of like, well, Xander is a carpenter, therefore let's put some tools in his living room. And like, no, you guys, that doesn't make any goddamn sense. But okay, whatever. Um, so I don't know if I would have noticed that if they hadn't mentioned it on that podcast, but I just wanted to bring it up in case you don't listen to that podcast and you want to go hmm with me anyway there you go i always just point out the stupidest fucking things this podcast is (laughs) i don't even know do you guys listen are you listening right now does anybody care let me know thanks ray at (laughs) protonmail.com i think it's just because i don't have like normal social media attached to this podcast so it's like it's harder for people to reach out to me. You have to actually want to compose an email to reach out to me. So like, I see that I get listens on my podcast, but I just don't ever get feedback. So it just feels like I'm talking to no one, which I am. I'm sitting alone in a closet with a recorder in my hand. So I'm talking to no one, but you know, presumably people are listening, right? Validate me. It's my birthday and I don't know if anyone's listening. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, I'm really not pathetic or maybe I am whatever. It doesn't matter. So Giles, Spike and Dawn can't know this gets reiterated over and over mostly by Willow because I get Spike not being told because he wouldn't be able to keep a secret. Giles couldn't be told because he would have talked everyone out of it. Um, And Dawn, it just would have been too emotional for Dawn to know. So I totally get why they chose to exclude them, but really it was just Willow choosing to exclude them. Both Tara and Anya should have known what this spell would entail. You know, I get the plausible deniability with Xander. He don't know fucking shit about spells. Like, Willow could have kept the secrets of how deep, dark, in the depths the spell was, he could have kept that, she could have kept that from Xander. But it doesn't make sense that she kept it from Anya and Tara. Anyway. Um, Willow's excuse, and she really is driving this point home, probably mostly to convince herself because she wants to do this spell, and also to convince everyone else why she's so adamant about doing it. She's talking about how she doesn't know where Buffy is. Buffy could be in a hell dimension. She can't be left there. And that is what talks everyone into it. So I guess in that sense, you know, if we're supposed to imagine a whole summer of Willow talking Tara into it, at this point, Tara's like, I've made my decision to go along with her. I'm just going to fucking do it at this point. So I'll just have to believe that's, that's how this is going. Um, and I, you know, showing Anya as clueless is just, it's an oversight on the writer's part because they could have easily like shown some dialogue of Anya sort of like acknowledging that she knows how dangerous the spell is, but she doesn't care. You know, like why would Anya care? She doesn't care. She doesn't have a very big moral compass. Like that's one of the things we love about Anya. Um, 
Willow fixes the Buffy bot because her navigational system is down. Dawn sleeps next to the Buffy bot, which is just heartbreaking. But it makes sense. It just totally, it makes sense. They're all living with this robot that looks like the person that died, you know? That is so fucked up. Giles is training with the Buffy bot. He doesn't need to train with the Buffy bot. You know, you see these sort of elements of denial that Buffy's really dead from all of these characters in different ways and how they interact with the Buffy bot. They're treating her as if she's like a member of their team to a certain extent because it's the only way they get Buffy now that she's gone. And that totally makes sense to me. I think they did this part right, really. Anya like tells Giles in this scene where he's like training the Buffy bot. She's not the descendant of a long line of slayers. She's the descendant of a toaster oven. <laughs> like Anya's trying to like be real about this, you know, even though she sounds harsh. Um, Buffy bot kind of counsels Giles and she's the one that sort of suggests that he go, you know, because Giles is talking about how guilty he feels about getting his slayer killed in the line of duty and all this stuff, which would exactly be what Giles would be going through. That totally makes sense. And the Buffy bot's like, well, then why are you still here? You know, if your job is done, you're done being a watcher. Your life isn't here. Why are you here? Buff so I just wrote as my um, note there, Buffy bot as counselor. Then we get, okay, so the Hanson vampire goes to this like demon biker gang and tells them that the Slayer is a robot, that she's a decoy, a stand-in for the actual Slayer, which he has no way of knowing that. <laughs> like, anyway, but whatever. Just because he saw that one Buffy was whatever. And they kill him and they decide they're going to Sunnydale. So there's this whole fucking demon biker gang that's on their way to Sunnydale now. This is where we get the scene between Willow and the deer, her calling upon the blessed one. I'm so glad I know what that spell was about now. I just thought it was sacrificing an innocent deer, but it's sacrificing an innocent deer embodied by an angel. She was sacrificing an angel and an innocent deer. I know I already said that, but I just have to repeat it because that is significant. That is the most awful thing she did for this spell. And if you believe that she really did it because she genuinely believed that Buffy was in hell, you can understand why she did it. But did she really believe that? Or was that her excuse to, so that she could do this super dangerous spell? Because Willow likes to fix things when she's grieving, she wants to just fix things. She wants to, to snap her fingers and the grief to be over. And this is her way of doing that in this particular case, you know, which totally tracks. Um, the, uh, the spell ingredient is vino de madre. So wine of the mother. So that's the spell ingredient that is the blood of the innocent, um, deer slash angel. Um, so everybody's at the magic shop. Everybody that's going to do the spell tonight, they're all at the magic shop during the day of the night that they're going to do it, do the spell. And they're super nervous, which I think is really, I like that they kind of have the scene in there, that they're all just kind of freaking out because of how nervous they are. And Willow sits down next to Tara and says, 
you got butterflies, baby? And Tara's like, more like bats. <laughs> She's got bats in her stomach, worrying about this spell coming up. She just wants it to be over. She's, you know, from my perspective, it's like she's made this decision, despite her better judgment, that she's going to go along with Willow to do this spell because this is her best friend. This is the person that holds their entire group together. Like, she knows that they shouldn't be meddling in these forces, but she's going to allow it in this one case. And since she made this fucking decision, she just wants it to be done because she knows that she shouldn't have made this decision to support this. You know, anyway. Um... Xander has too many buttons on Donna's shirt. That was an important note that I wrote down. So important. <laughs> um, so they're in the magic box and they realize Giles left a note. He's at the airport. So they all gather together with Dawn, go to the airport. Um, I don't know if they waited for Dawn to get out of school because she wasn't there at the magic box, but whatever. They show up, they give him some presents, they all hug him, it's really sweet. There's this stupid moment where, like, um, Giles and Xander were, like, looking at each other, like, do we hug? I don't know, we're dudes, do we hug? But they do. <laughs> but still, did they have to have that moment? No. But anyway, um, Giles hugged everyone. You get the moment. They let you, like, really sit with it, probably because this is, like, a two-episode, a two-parter. You, you got to actually see every single hug, and it was really sweet. And they see him off at the airport, which it's important to note that this episode aired October 2nd, 2001, which was, you know, not even three weeks after September 11th, 2001. So, like, they filmed this whole episode before, you know, all of the tragic events of September 11th happened. But, um, this, you know, it's just kind of interesting to see a scene where they were able to just go into the airport and find him at the gate when you can't do that anymore. You know, <laughs> they probably didn't even have any planes running at this point. I don't know. How long were the planes shut down? I don't know. I remember it was a thing. Um, but anyway, um, Xander has some comment about like how he wanted to buy some bottle of liquor to give some, something called old English or something to give to Giles. And like, he couldn't do it because the guy outside the, the liquor store wouldn't buy it for them or whatever. And so that was just like a little bit of a what? They're all under 21 still? Which I guess they would be since Buffy's tombstone said 1981 to 2001. So the rest of them would be still 20, I guess. But it's just so weird to think, God, these kids, they've been through so much. They're only 20 years old. <laughs> anyway, um, Willow, Willow jinxes it because like as they're leaving the airport, they're talking about like, should we even like, should we have told Giles because like he's leaving and he might not need to be leaving because of what's happening tonight and blah, blah, blah. And, um, at some point Willow says nothing can go wrong tonight. We couldn't be more prepared. You know, she says that kind of shit. Um, which let's go ahead and get into it now because my biggest rant with this whole fucking thing we couldn't be more prepared. They've been planning this fucking spell all summer long, we're supposed to believe. And they're finally, they have all the ingredients. Mercury's in retrograde. They're ready to go. 
Step number one in this fucking spell. If you're bringing your best friend back to life and, you know, they knew enough to know that they needed to go to her gravesite in order to do this spell to bring her back to life, but they didn't think to dig up her motherfucking grave. They thought she was just going to like appear or something like really how could they not know that they needed to make sure that she could get up and get out like how did they not know that she was going to be resurrected inside her motherfucking coffin where else would she come back to life they should have dug her up <laughs> step one spend hours digging up your best friend. Step two, light the four fucking black candles. And then step three, let the snake come out of Willow's mouth. Okay? Done. <laughs> you know? Shit. That pissed me off. I don't remember thinking that the first time I watched it, though. I didn't think that at all. Like, I was totally just, like, riding the wave of whatever the story wanted to tell me. And I don't know if that was because times were different in 2001. I don't know if it was because, you know, I was only 20 years old at that point. Or, yeah, I would have been either, yeah, I was 19. I was 19. Never mind. I wasn't even 20. Because I'm a year younger than Buffy. So, <laughs> anyway. Um, one of the things, one of the quotes from the spell that I just kind of, I like the sound of, um, Willow says, before time and after, before knowing and nothing. I kind of want to incorporate that into, like, because I steal, like, little things like that from, like, Buffy and the craft and, you know, practical magic. And, like, I steal stuff from movies and TV to use in my spells. So I kind of want to steal that before time and after, before knowing and nothing. It just sounds really cool to me. Okay. Another gripe. Why are Xander, Tara, and Anya just, all they do is light a black candle and then they just sit there. The only thing I can think of, I mean, cause both Anya and Tara have experience with, you know, they're both witches. You know, maybe Anya's not currently a practicing witch, but, you know, it's in her history. She's a thousand years old. The only thing I can think of is that we're supposed to think that Willow just kept them all so in the dark about what was going on with the spell that she only gave them... She didn't want to give up any control of the spell. She wanted to do the whole thing herself. And... So she really only gave them the job of lighting the fucking black candles and being there. And she told Tara that like some shit would happen and, you know, she would be tested, but she didn't even tell Xander and Anya that part, you know, she was very selective about what she gave away about this particular spell, which means they weren't all in on the logistics of the spell, you know, like you would think that they would all... If they're preparing to do the spell together, I'll, fuck, I'm sorry. I know, I'm really perseverating on this, but whatever. The demon bikers show up in town. The fucking score. This was one of my first notes in the whole episode. Is my very first notes for the first episode of season six. Cemetery chase. Score is still terrible. Because especially the fight scenes and the action-y scenes, I really fucking hate the score in this show. 
I really hate it. Like sometimes in like the more emotionally, the more emotionally evocative scenes, it must be a different person that does the score for that because I, I appreciate those, the sort of like sweeping, like the angel and Buffy theme is kind of pretty, you know, the scene, the score that you get like between Dawn and, um, Buffy on the tower, that's a pretty little thing, but like what's happening during the fucking fight scenes, the sound, oh, it's just awful. It's just awful. Okay. Willow pukes up a snake. All this shit's happening. It's really, really serious. Um, everybody's freaking out, but Tara's like, she, she told us that this would happen. She told me that this would happen. We need to, we need to let her do this. Um, then Buffy is going back to Willow cause she had the Buffy bot because she has like a homing device that like when she's injured, she goes back to Willow. So she inadvertently leads the entire biker gang to them in the cemetery to Buffy's grave. So it breaks the urn, the, they run their motorcycles over the urn and it breaks and the spell stops. Um, and they have to run because the biker gang is just destroying everything. Um, get on your loud bicycles and leave. That's what the Buffy bot says to the demon bikers. The loud bicycles. Fucking motorcycles. You know what I'm saying? The ones that are like obnoxiously loud for no reason. Like, you know, it's fine if you want to, you know, if you want to have a motorcycle, it's fine. I would be too scared to do it, honestly. Um, I've never ridden on a motorcycle. I don't think. I surely I would remember that, right? <laughs> My dad used to ride motorcycles, but I know that like, yeah, I would have had to have been older and he wasn't, he wasn't that daring to like ask me to get on the back of his motorcycle whenever I was a kid. And I like stopped hanging out with him when I was like 13. So yeah, never happened. <laughs> um, let's see, where are we? So they have to kind of split up because like Willow is just like going in and out of consciousness after the spell. Cause it took a lot out of her. Like, for example, snakes, as Xander says at one point. Um, so Xander ends up like suggesting that they split up Anya and Tara go one way and, um, Xander and Willow, Xander like carries Willow the other way. Um, so this is the end of bargaining part one, if they were two separate episodes, but they're really not. But the very last part is Buffy coming back to life. So you see, this is like a really powerful scene, actually. Like CGI has definitely come a long way in the last 20 years. Um, it's usually pretty terrible on Buffy because not only because it was 2001, but also because it's a low budget TV show for the most part. Um, but this scene where they show Buffy's corpse being reanimated and her coming back into it is so powerful. They did such a good job. I think, I mean, even now, every time I see that, like sometimes I just rewind it and watch it over and over because, and I remember them showing it like in the, did they show it in the promos? 
I know they showed it on like previous Leons and stuff like that forever, so you get to see it happen over and over, which is incredible. It was just so, so powerful. Like, I get goosebumps every time I see that scene. It's just wow. Um, Buffy's... Uh, okay, I just wrote Buffy in her coffin crying like I'm crying again. So this is like my second time crying watching these two episodes because she's in her coffin and she's scratching at the fabric and she's like looking like she's trying to scream, but she can't. She doesn't have a voice yet. So there's some things I think they did pretty well as far as this whole thing is concerned. Like her... Her makeup being like her makeup her she she looked like she wasn't wearing makeup so they did a good job with that um her hair being like you know really cave woman like it was evocative of her like you know season four beer bad days um they did a good job with that um they um the the whole like when they kept showing things from her point of view and like it looked like Vaseline was like on the lens of the camera or whatever it looked like she you know was having a really hard time seeing she couldn't hear very well everything was too bright too loud that was making me cry a lot because it was just you know it reminded me of of my own life as an autistic person you know because that's that's the whole thing with autism is like everything's too loud everything is too bright everything is there's just, it's sensory overload all the time, particularly like the more stressed you are, the more sensory overload you're experiencing and all of that stuff. And I just, I really identified with that, you know, her just sort of like everyone just getting in her face and like her having to, her trying to scream as she's like, you know, clawing out of her own grave and she can't make a sound. Like you hear that sort of harshness as she's trying to scream and like, Oh, it's just so powerful. One thing, and I've never thought about this until this particular viewing, but they, okay, so first of all, I have thought about this part of it. Why the fuck was she wearing what she was wearing in her grave? It was just like the weirdest, like black dress, like it's nothing that was in her wardrobe. And she was wearing like these weird, like old lady shoes. I don't know. It was just a very weird outfit. Like who was in charge of that? Why didn't they put her in an outfit that she liked wearing? You know, they should have put her in like her red leather pants and her, you know, black leather jacket, right? Or what they really should have done, what would have been really super cool is if the costume designers put her in her prophecy girl dress. Like that was a beautiful dress that she really, really loved that she wore to a dance. And that was the last time she died because she drowned at the end of season one in that prophecy girl outfit, which I just say, cause that was the name of the episode. Um, Tara's super comforting to Anya. They get back to the magic box and, um, Xander and Willow are just kind of lost in the woods. So it takes them forever to get back. Um, Xander confronting Willow about the spell. Tara sends, she calls upon Aradia and she sends that little light to guide them out of the forest since they're lost. Spike and Dawn are still together at the Summer's house. Spike steals a motorcycle as they're trying to like weave through the neighborhood and like try to get out or something. He steals a motorcycle from one of the motorcycle gang 
And there you go. There's the chariot right there. <laughs> um, there's Dawn's chariot. Um, Xander is confronting Will. Okay, um, the demon bikers are deciding that they're going to set up shop in the Hellmouth in Sunnydale. They're like, this place is great. We're not going to move on like we normally do. We're just going to hang out here. <laughs> We're just going to camp out. Buffy encounters the Buffy bot, which of course is very confusing because she's walking around. She doesn't know what the fuck's going on. There's all this chaos everywhere. The, the demon biker gang is everywhere. She just crawled out of her own grave. The first thing she sees is her own fucking tombstone. She doesn't know what the fuck's going on. No one's there waiting for her when she gets out. You know, she, and the first person that she sees that she recognizes is herself. You know, she must be so confused and she sees the Buffy bot getting torn apart. She doesn't know where she is. It makes total sense that she would be this confused. Um, so, okay. Everybody else is, so they've all caught up with each other. Um, Willow, Tara, Xander, and Anya, and they are deciding to go back out and try to find Dawn and Spike. So they're walking through alleys and stuff and they run into Buffy. But right before that, um, Tara is kind of suggesting to Willow, like, this is just, it's some really serious shit that we were dealing with. Like maybe, maybe the fates stepped in, like all of this chaotic stuff happening just as we were finally doing the spell. Maybe we, it wasn't supposed to work. You know, that was her way of trying to comfort Willow and, you know, actually speak up about the fact that she really thinks this, you know? But right after she says that, they actually run into Buffy. And everybody just, they do not, and this is the first of, you know, a whole season of this. They don't take care of her in this moment. You know, she's obviously extremely traumatized. They realize pretty quickly, Xander actually is the one that realizes oh shit, she clawed out of her own grave. Like, how do we not think of this? We are so stupid. Um, how do we not think about this? You know, the whole spell was about Willow and Willow needing it to happen and being very insistent that it happened and being very insistent that she take care of everything. You know, it's, this is the way that I'm like, sort of like making it work in my own head canon. Um, that is what you call, okay, I'm, I'm explaining this to my mom because I know she can be like, what? What's headcanon? So headcanon is like the concept of like whenever you make up like backstory about a plot or a character that helps you make sense of the whole thing, it is your own headcanon. It's not, um, it's not the canon of the show. Why do they call it a canon? I don't know. But you know, my own personal headcanon is that the whole summer was like Willow insisting that she be in control of everything and insisting that they do this, which means that they overlooked a very important aspect, which is that Buffy would have to claw out of her own grave if they didn't dig it up for her. So he realizes that and uncharacteristic of Xander, he realizes this immediately 
and he apologizes to Buffy immediately. Like, I'm so sorry we didn't know. But, so that's uncharacteristic of Xander to be apologizing for something and admitting that he did something wrong, right? But, oh God. <laughs> I'm just so mad at how they react to her. You know, they're, they're, they're saying, Buffy, you're home. You're home. Are you okay? And they're like talking louder when she obviously is just extremely overstimulated. You know, they should have immediately been, and I get that they're sort of in a running for your life kind of situation at the moment, but this is just not, they should have had, <laughs> they should have had, not only should they have known that they needed to dig up her fucking grave for her, but they also should have had, I don't know, they should have been talking about how to communicate with her in the beginning when she's very disoriented you know, they knew, I mean, I guess maybe Buffy sort of like hid from them everything that happened with Angel whenever he came back from the hell dimension. And they assumed that Buffy would be coming back from a hell dimension. Um, but so she kind of hid how he was doing from everyone. So maybe they didn't know how disoriented a person would be coming back from the dead, but surely they would presume like it's they they don't know how they were so concerned with having her back and how they would feel about having her back that they didn't take into account they just weren't being empathetic and that's totally uncharacteristic of Tara like I can see how the rest of them assholes <laughs> wouldn't know how to deal with this empathetically but Tara but at least Tara Tara is the one that says um where is it Oh, everyone's getting in her face. Tara says, when Xander's trying to apologize to Buffy for not knowing that she would be, you know, come back to her body exactly where her body was. Tara says, you aren't reaching her. She's too traumatized. And that's like the most understanding thing that's even said in this whole interaction. <laughs> You're not reaching her. She's too traumatized. Um, the demons catch up with all of them in this moment that, the, that they're trying to like talk to Buffy and Buffy's just, she's nonverbal. She's kind of rocking back and forth. She's, she's definitely not okay. She's definitely not okay. And, um, Xander refers to himself as a man, witch at one point, which is just funny. Um, so Buffy is activated as a warrior of the people as a slayer when the demons are suggesting that they rape all of the women in this scene, which this is the first time they actually say that. That's when she reacts. That's when she stands up and she starts fighting. So you see Buffy fighting again and you think, well, maybe she's okay. Maybe she's okay now. <laughs> um, Spike and Dawn, meanwhile, Spike and Dawn find the Buffy bot and Dawn is reacting as if, oh shit, you know, it's like I have to see, my Michael said, oh, he had to see her sister dead twice. And I didn't even think of it that way, but like, yeah, that's what she's doing. She's reacting to the Buffy bot being dismembered because that's what was happening when Buffy saw the Buffy bot. It was being dismembered by the demon biker gang, if I didn't mention that part. 
Um, so she's kind of shutting down. The robot is shutting down. And, um, but she wakes up for a second and talks to Dawn and says, I was here. No, not me. The other Buffy. I don't know where I went. And so that leads Dawn to immediately, like, this is where her chariot self comes in, her number seven on her shirt, which she's still wearing. She's wearing a sweater over it, but she's still wearing the seven. Don't worry. Because <laughs> you care. Um, so that's when she separates from Spike. And his back is turned at the, at the moment. And so she was able to get away because she just immediately is like, what? Buffy? She's back? I'm going to go find her right now. And she seems to know exactly where to go. Um, I just like, this is just like a little moment of like when Buffy, ki Buffy kills one of the, she runs away from everyone after she does like this little fight and everybody's like, Buffy, you're back. You did it. And they get a little too fucking excited and she has to run away because she's overstimulated. And she kills a demon like on another alley as she's running away from everyone by impaling him. And the way that she reacts to him in this particular alley, like, let me know if you guys think there's anything to this, but it kind of reminded me of when Faith accidentally killed the deputy mayor in season three. And just sort of the way that she was kind of reacting to the horrors of impaling that demon. It, it's midnight. That's my midnight notification. <laughs> um, reminded me of that moment. Like, was she reacting like, Oh God, I just, I just killed this guy. This reminds me of something that actually happened in my life with my, my best friend Faith. <laughs> um, I don't know. Like, I mean, it's not exactly right. Cause he wasn't impaled like that, but just kind of the way that she reacted to that moment reminded me of just in that particular alleyway and everything. I don't know. There's probably nothing to that. Um, Tara gets to kill one of the demon biker guys with an ax to defend Willow, which is super fun. We don't get to see Tara like in combat really ever. So that was nice. Um, Buffy finds the tower and she climbs up to the top and she wants to jump back into the void. This makes total sense to me because how traumatized she is and she's like her memories of her life are coming back to her. She doesn't understand where she is because everything looks wrong, like her friends are there. But at this point, does she even really recognize them? I feel like she's just so disoriented that she she doesn't know anything about what's going on right now. She can't make sense. Like her brain is not connecting what she's sensing with actual memories, but she remembers this tower. And then she starts to remember the moment where she jumped into the void and saved her sister. And as we will find out later, this is not a spoiler free podcast in case this is the first time you're listening. As we will find out later, she was in what she conceptualized as heaven after she died. She was happy. She was at peace. And so her going to the top of this tower and remembering that moment, it makes sense that she thinks that now she needs to do it again. Like she doesn't even know at this point, she probably has no idea that like what she's experiencing is even real right now, you know, cause she's not going to have enough foresight. She's not, she wouldn't know that 
she was seeing the Buffy bot get taken apart earlier. She was seeing herself. And anyway, so it totally makes sense to me. And I never really put it together until this particular rewatch that like, you know, she's not being suicidal right now. She just doesn't know where she is. And she knows that her very last memories of life were on this tower and everything after that was amazing. So she probably just thinks she needs to redo that. It, that makes sense to me. Um, anyway, um, where are we? Buffy wants to jump back into the void. Dawn is the only thing that can bring her back. So Dawn goes up to the top of the tower. She saves her sister. If she hadn't done that, Buffy would have jumped off. She would have. And Dawn is the only thing that can bring her back. And so this is a mirroring, mirroring, mirroring. Why does that sound so weird? Mirror ring <laughs> of the scene at the end of the, the gift, right? So instead of Buffy telling Dawn that she needs to be brave and live, Dawn is saying to Buffy that she needs to be brave and live for her. And she's doing it in the right way. You know, like the way that she's talking to Buffy, she doesn't need anything from her except for her to, you know, come towards her, to be with her. That's all she needs. Whereas with, you know, her friends in the alley, they, they needed her to reassure them that she was okay. And she can't do that right now. But the only thing Dawn was asking of her is to live. And the very first words that come out of Buffy's mouth, which should have been an immediate indicator that, oh, Buffy was not in some kind of hell dimension. Oh, at all. Because her very first words when she comes back to life are right here in the very last scene, you know, an hour and a half in, you know, at this point. Um, the whole two-parter was an hour and 26 minutes. So we're probably like an hour and 20 minutes, 22 minutes in. And she finally says her first words, which is, is this hell? And Dawn's like, no, no, Buffy, you're home. Everybody keeps telling her she's home. And it's like, do you see what she sees right now? Like, everything's on fire. It's total apocalypse because of all this, these demon bikers that have destroyed everything in town and blah, blah, blah. Like home. Like are you guys even paying attention? <laughs> but in any case, Dawn talks her off the ledge. She does. And the tower starts coming down and Buffy activates again to save her sister. And that's really, so it's, it's almost like, you know, maybe, I mean, Dawn really did save her sister, but like Buffy did not really make the choice to live necessarily. She made the choice to save her sister, which meant that she at least accepted this world that she's in as a reality enough to make sure to save her sister, you know? Um, where else, where are we? Oh, um, one of the notes I wrote was she has no clarity now because like, as she's, after she says, is this hell, she's sort of saying like, I, 
something to the effect of like, I knew everything was so clear. I knew exactly what I needed to do the last time I was here. So you can see, oh shit. Yeah. She has, she doesn't know anything right now. She's completely, you know, moreless or whatever. Is that the, is that the phrase? She has no grounding in reality. You know, she has nothing to grasp onto except for her sister. Her sister is her only anchor to life. And that's it. So as, as they get off the tower, the whole thing comes crumbling down. Talk about tarot metaphors. Am I right? The whole tower comes crumbling down as they just get away. And they're like outside the fence of wherever the tower is or whatever. They're out on the street and Dawn's like, you're home. You're really home. And she hugs Buffy and she's so relieved and she's so happy. And the very last shot of the episode is just Buffy's dead eyes. Like, yeah, I'm home. Great. And my last note is she's not okay. She is not okay. And we are about to dive into it. The good news is we're like, so that was essentially two episodes out of the 22. So that's, we're 11th of the way through this season already. So just a little bit of business to get it out of the way. We have six, seven, eight, nine, nine episodes, 10. If you count the fact that this one was actually two, 10 episodes out of the 22 in this season are going to be just in quick succession week after week after week with no gaps. And then we're going to have a gap throughout the month of December. We're going to have a break. Um, and then we'll come back in January, I'm assuming, but yeah, so we're in it now, guys, we are fully in it. Um, hopefully next week I will be able to record earlier because right now it's technically two days later because it's after midnight. So it's October 4th now, and I should have been bringing you this content two days ago, but whatever, no one seems to care if I'm late. The idea is that I generally talk about each episode 20 years later. I'm the only one that's like, oh, I am not exact. Okay. So let's do ratings of the episode, shall we? So object of the episode, like I said, is that little sticker that looks like a bumper sticker that Giles had next to his desk that said, no parking in rear violators will be towed. It's not a good sticker. I don't really want it, but like there was really nothing else in this episode that I wanted to keep forever. Maybe the two like big, there were like these two big quartz crystals that were like behind in the magic shop that I hadn't seen before, but what would I do with those? I don't know. Outfit of the episode. Like I, I don't love this particular outfit, but Tara's like, she had like this gray lace sort of scoop neck shirt and some like faded rose colored corduroys, which I don't really want them because they were that kind of like low rise corduroy of, of this time period that like, no, I do not want to go back to low rise pants. I know it's going to happen at some point. Everything comes back, but holy shit. Anyway, MVP of the episode by far is Dawn. That's it. She saved Buffy. She was the one that really did it. She, yeah. 
quote of the episode is the um, when the Buffy bot after she stakes that vampire in the first scene and she says that'll put marzipan in your pie plate bingo for some reason that just sticks in my head and I think about it all the time I say it sometimes and I'm pretty sure this is the only time it's ever said in the show but like it just it just clicked in with my brain when I first heard it um, ratings of the episode um, five by five Let's just sort of skip over the, like, I don't know, whatever treatment of women part. Because, I mean, there was really barely any sexism that showed up in this episode at all. Um, so let's just give it a rating as far as, like, enjoyability. I mean, that's the wrong word. That's the wrong word for most episodes in season six enjoyability isn't going to be the thing. It's going to be like effectiveness. Like how good do I think these episodes were in bringing home the emotional realities that we are going into in season six? I think it was pretty good at that. I hated the score and the action sequences. I hated a lot of the demon biker gang shit because it was just so chaotic, but that's how it was supposed to be. So, um, the fashion was really bad. Like nobody had a good outfit. Like that one that I, the outfit that I gave to Tara was just the best of, it was just the lesser of all the evils of the outfits in this episode. Um, I'll give it a, I, I kind of want to give it a four, but that's pretty high rating. Yeah. Okay. I'll give it a four. So there you go. Five by five is four out of five. Um, thank you guys for listening. Y'all are the best. And I will see you next week where we will talk about afterlife. And also, we'll also talk about the angel episode called that old gang. Okay. Bye.